Chapter 5 of Some Problems of Philosophy, A Beginning of an Introduction to Philosophy, by William James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Percept and Concept, The Abuse of Concepts. In spite of this obvious need of holding our percepts fast if our conceptual powers are to mean anything distinct, there has always been a tendency among philosophers to treat conception as the more essential thing in knowledge. Footnote. The traditional rationalist view would have it that to understand life without entering its turmoil is the absolutely better part. Philosophy's special work, writes William Wallace, is to comprehend the world, not to try to make it better. End footnote. The Platonizing Persuasion has ever been that the intelligible order ought to supersede the senses, rather than interpret them. The senses, according to this opinion, are organs of wavering illusion that stand in the way of knowledge, in the unalterable sense of that term. They are an unfortunate complication on which philosophers may safely turn their backs. Your sensational modalities, writes one of these, quote, are but darkness, remember that, mount higher up to reason and you will see light impose silence on your senses your imagination and your passions and you will then hear the pure voice of interior truth the clear and evident replies of our common mistress reason never confound that evidence which results from the comparison of ideas with the vivacity of those feelings which move and touch you we must follow reason despite the caresses the threats and the insults of the body to which we are conjoined, despite the action of the objects that surround us. I exhort you to recognize the difference there is between knowing and feeling, between our clear ideas and our sensations always obscure and confused. Unquote. This is the traditional intellectualist creed. When Plato, its originator, first thought of concepts as forming an entirely separate world and treated this as the only object fit for the study of immortal minds, he lit up an entirely new sort of enthusiasm in the human breast. These objects were precious objects. Concrete things were dross. Introduced by Dion, who had studied at Athens, to the corrupt and worldly court of the tyrant of Syracuse, Plato, as Plutarch tells us, was received with wonderful kindness and respect. The citizens began to entertain marvelous hopes of a speedy reformation, when they observed the modesty which now ruled the banquets, and the general decorum which reigned in all the court, their tyrant also behaving himself with gentleness and humanity. There was a general passion for reasoning and philosophy, so much so that the very palace it is reported was filled with dust, by the concourse of the students in mathematics who were working their problems there in the sand. Some, quote, professed to be indignant that the Athenians, who formerly had come to Syracuse with a great fleet and numerous army, and perished miserably without being able to take the city, should now, by means of one sophister, overturn the sovereignty of Dionysus, inveigling him to cashier his guard of ten thousand lances, dismiss a navy of four hundred galleys, disband an army of ten thousand horse, and many times over that number of foot, and go seek in the schools an unknown and imaginary bliss, and learn by the mathematicians how to be happy. End footnote. Having now set forth the merits of the conceptual translation, 
I must proceed to show its shortcomings. We extend our view when we insert our percepts into our conceptual map. We learn about them, and of some of them we transfigure the value. But the map remains superficial through the abstractness, and faults through the discreteness of its elements. And the whole operation, so far from making things appear more rational, becomes the source of quite gratuitous unintelligibilities. Conceptual knowledge is forever inadequate to the fullness of the reality to be known. Reality consists of existential particulars as well as of essences and universals and class names, and of existential particulars we become aware only in the perceptual flux. The flux can never be superseded. We must carry it with us to the bitter end of our cognitive business, keeping it in the midst of the translation even when the latter proves illuminating, and falling back on it alone when the translation gives out. The insuperability of sensation would be a short expression of my thesis. To prove it, I must show, one, that concepts are secondary formations, inadequate and only ministerial, and two, that they falsify as well as omit and make the flux impossible to understand. One, conception is a secondary process, not indispensable to life. It presupposes perception which is self-sufficing, as all lower creatures in whom conscious life goes on by reflex adaptations show. To understand a concept, you must know what it means. It means always some this, or some abstract portion of a this, with which we first made acquaintance in the perceptual world, or else some grouping of such abstract portions. All conceptual content is borrowed. To know what the concept color means, you must have seen red or blue or green. To know what resistance means, you must have made some effort. To know what motion means, you must have had some experience, active or passive thereof. This applies as much to concepts of the most rarefied order as to qualities like bright and loud. To know what the word elation means, one must once have sweated through some particular argument. To know what a proportion means, one must have compared ratios in some sensible case. You can create new concepts out of old elements, but the elements must have been perceptually given. And the famous world of universals would disappear like a soap bubble if the definite contents of feeling, the thises and thats, which its terms severally denote, could be at once withdrawn. Whether our concepts live by returning to the perceptual world or not, they live by having come from it. It is the nourishing ground from which their sap is drawn. 2. Conceptual treatment of perceptual reality makes it seem paradoxical and incomprehensible, and when radically and consistently carried out, it leads to the opinion that perceptual experience is not reality at all, but an appearance or illusion. Briefly, this is the consequence of two facts. First, that when we substitute concepts for percepts, we substitute their relations also. But since the relations of concepts are of static comparison only, it is impossible to substitute them for the dynamic relations with which the perceptual flux is filled. Secondly, the conceptual scheme consisting as it does of discontinuous terms can only cover the perceptual flux in spots and incompletely. The one is no full measure of the other. 
essential features of the flux escaping whenever we put concepts in its place. This needs considerable explanation. For we have concepts not only of qualities and relations, but of happenings and actions, and it might seem as if these could make the conceptual order active. But this would be a false interpretation. Footnote. Professor Hibben, in an article in the Philosophic Review, seeks to defend the conceptual order against attacks similar to those in the text, which he thinks come from misapprehensions of the true function of logic. The peculiar function of thought is to represent the continuous, he says, and he proves it by the example of the calculus. I reply that the calculus, in substituting for certain perceptual continuities its peculiar symbols, lets us follow changes point by point, and is thus their practical, but not their sensible, equivalent. It cannot reveal any change to one who never felt it, but it can lead him to where the change would lead him. It may practically replace the change, but it cannot reproduce it. What I am contending for is that the non-reproducible part of reality is an essential part of the content of philosophy, whilst Hibben and the logicists seem to believe that conception, if only adequately attained to, might be all-sufficient. It is the peculiar duty and privilege of philosophy, Mr. Hibben writes, to exalt the prerogatives of intellect. He claims that universals are able to deal adequately with particulars, and that concepts do not so exclude each other, as my text has accused them of doing. Of course, synthetic concepts abound, with subconcepts included in them, and the a priori world is full of them, but they are all designative, and I think that no careful reader of my text will excuse me of identifying knowledge with either perception or conception absolutely or exclusively. Perception gives intention. Conception gives extension to our knowledge. End footnote. The concepts themselves are fixed, even though they designate parts that move in the flux. They do not act, even though they designate activities. And when we substitute them in their order, we substitute a scheme, the intrinsically stationary nature of which is not altered by the fact that some of its terms symbolize changing originals. The concept of change, for example, is always that fixed concept. If it changed, its original self would have to stay to mark what it had changed from. And even then the change would be a perceived continuous process, of which the translation into concepts could only consist in the judgment that later and early parts of it differed such differences being conceived as absolutely static relations. Whenever we conceive a thing, we define it, and if we still don't understand, we define our definition. Thus I define a certain percept by saying, this is motion, or I am moving, and then I define motion by calling it the being in new positions at new moments of time. This habit of telling what everything is becomes inveterate. The farther we push it, the more we learn about our subject of discourse, and we end by thinking that knowing the latter always consists in getting farther and farther away from the perceptual type of experience. This uncriticized habit, added to the intrinsic charm of the conceptual form, is the source of intellectualism in philosophy. But intellectualism quickly breaks down. When we try to exhaust motion by conceiving it as a summation of parts, ad infinitum, we find only insufficiency. Although, when you have a continuum given, you can make cuts and dots in it, ad libitum, enumerating the dots and cuts will not give you your continuum back. The rationalist mind admits this, 
but instead of seeing that the fault is with the concepts, it blames the perceptual flux. This, Kant contends, has no reality in itself, being a mere apparitional birthplace for concepts, to be substituted indefinitely. When these themselves are seen never to attach to a completed sum, reality is sought by such thinkers outside both of the perceptual flow and of the conceptual scheme. Kant lodges it before the flow, in the shape of so-called things in themselves. Footnote. We suppose noumena, says Kant, in order to set bounds to the objective validity of sense knowledge, the old moral need of somehow rebuking sinlichite. End footnote. Others place it beyond perception, as an absolute, Bradley, or represent it as a mind whose ways of thinking transcends ours, Green, the Cairds, Royce. In either case, both our percepts and our concepts are held by such philosophers to falsify reality. But the concepts less than the percepts, for they are static, and by all rationalist authors the ultimate reality is supposed to be static also while perceptual life fairly boils over with activity and change. If we take a few examples, we can see how many of the troubles of philosophy come from assuming that to be understood or known in the only worthy sense of the word, our flowing life must be cut into discrete bits and pinned upon a fixed relational scheme. Example 1. Activity and causation are incomprehensible, for the conceptual scheme yields nothing like them. Nothing happens therein, concepts are timeless, and can only be juxtaposed and compared. The concept dog does not bite, the concept cock does not crow. So Hume and Kant translate the fact of causation into the crude juxtaposition of two phenomena. Later authors, wishing to mitigate the crudeness, resolve the adjacency, whenever they can, into identity. Cause and effect must be the same reality in disguise and our perception of difference in these successions thus becomes an illusion. Lotze elaborately establishes that the influencing of one thing by another is inconceivable. Influence is a concept, and as such, a distinct third thing, to be identified neither with the agent nor the patient. What becomes of it on its way from the former to the latter? And when it finds the latter, how does it act upon it? By a second influence which it puts forth in turn? But then again how? And so forth and so forth till our whole intuition of activity gets branded as illusory because you cannot possibly reproduce its flowing substance by juxtaposing the discrete. Intellectualism draws the dynamic continuity out of nature as you draw the thread out of a string of beads. Example 2. Knowledge is impossible, for knower is one concept and known is another. Discrete, separated by a chasm, they are mutually transcendent things, so that how an object can ever get into a subject, or a subject ever get at an object, has become the most unanswerable of philosophic riddles. An insincere riddle, too, for the most hardened epistemologist never really doubts that knowledge somehow does come off. Example 3. Personal identity is conceptually impossible. Ideas and states of mind are discrete concepts and a series of them in time means a plurality of disconnected terms. To such an atomistic plurality, the associationists reduce our mental life. Shocked at the discontinuous character of their scheme, the spiritualists assume a soul or ego to melt the separate ideas into one collective consciousness. 
but this ego itself is but another discrete concept and the only way not to pile up more puzzles is to endow it with an incomprehensible power by producing that very character of manyness in oneness of which rationalists refuse the gift when offered in its immediate perceptual form example four motion and change are impossible perception changes pulse-wise but the pulses continue each other and melt their bounds in conceptual translation however a continuum can only stand for elements with other elements between them ad infinitum all separately conceived and such an infinite series can never be exhausted by successive addition from the time of zeno the eleatic this intrinsic contradictoriness of continuous change has been one of the worst skulls at intellectualism's banquet example five resemblance in the way in which we naively perceive it is an illusion resemblance must be defined and when defined it reduces to a mixture of identity with otherness to know a likeness understandingly we must be able to abstract the identical point distinctly if we fail of this we remain in our perceptual limbo of confusion example six our immediate life is full of the sense of direction but no concept of the direction of a process is possible until the process is completed defined as it is by a beginning and an ending a direction can never be prospectively but only retrospectively known our perceptual discernment beforehand of the way we are going and all our conceptual foretastes of the future have therefore to be treated as inexplicable or illusory features of experience example seven no real thing can be in two relations at once the same moon for example cannot be seen both by you and by me for the concept seen by you is not the concept seen by me and if taking the moon as a grammatical subject and predicating one of these concepts of it you then predicate the other also you become guilty of the logical sin of saying that a thing can be both a and not a at once learned trifling again for clear though the conceptual contradictions be nobody sincerely disbelieves that two men see the same thing example eight no relation can be comprehended or held to be real in the form in which we innocently assume it a relation is a distinct concept and when you try to make two other concepts continuous by putting a relation between them you only increase the discontinuity you have now conceived three things instead of two and have two gaps instead of one to bridge over continuity is impossible in the conceptual world example nine the very relation of subject to predicate in our judgments the backbone of conceptual thinking itself is unintelligible and self-contradictory predicates are ready-made universal ideas by which we qualify perceptual singulars or other ideas sugar for example we say is sweet but if the sugar was already sweet you have made no step in knowledge whilst if not so already you are identifying it with a concept with which in its universality the particular sugar cannot be identical thus neither the sugar as described nor your description is comprehensible footnote i have cited in the text only such conceptual puzzles as have become classic in philosophy but the concepts current in physical science have also developed mutual oppugnancies which although not yet classic commonplaces in philosophy 
are beginning to make physicists doubt whether such notions develop unconditional truth. Many physicists now think that the concepts of matter, mass, atom, ether, inertia, force, etc., are not so much duplicates of hidden realities in nature as mental instruments to handle nature by after substitution of their scheme. They are considered like the kilogram or the imperial yard, artifacts, not revelations. The literature here is copious. End footnote. These profundities of inconceivability, and many others like them, arise from the vain attempt to reconvert the manifold into which our conception has resolved things back into the continuum out of which it came. The concept many is not the concept one. Therefore the manyness and oneness which perception offers is impossible to construe intellectually. Youthful readers will find such difficulties too whimsical to be taken seriously. But since the days of the Greek sophists, these dialectical puzzles have lain beneath the surface of all our thinking like the shoals and snags in the Mississippi River. And the more intellectually conscientious the thinkers have been, the less they have allowed themselves to disregard them. But most philosophers have noticed this or that puzzle only, and ignored the others. The Peronian skeptics first, then Hegel, then in our day Bradley and Bergson, are the only writers I know who have faced them collectively, and proposed a solution applicable to them all. The skeptics gave up the whole notion of truth light-heartedly, and advised their pupils not to care about it. Hegel wrote so abominably that I cannot understand him, and will say nothing about him here. Footnote. Hegel connects immediate perception with ideal truth by a ladder of intermediate concepts. At least, I suppose they are concepts. The best opinion among his interpreters seems to be that ideal truth does not abolish immediate perception, but preserves it as an indispensable moment. In other words, Hegel does not pull up the ladder after him when he gets to the top, and may therefore be counted as a non-intellectualist, in spite of his desperately intellectualist tone. End footnote. Bradley and Bergson write with beautiful clearness, and their arguments continue all that I have said. Mr. Bradley agrees that immediate feeling possesses a native wholeness which conceptual treatment analyzes into a many, but cannot unite again. In every this, as merely felt, Bradley says, we encounter reality, but we encounter it only as a fragment, see it, as it were, only through a whole. Our sole practicable way of extending and completing this fragment is by using our intellect with its universal ideas. But with ideas, that harmonious compenetration of manyness and oneness, which feeling originally gave, is no longer possible. Concepts, indeed, extend our this, but lose the inner secret of its wholeness. When ideal truth is substituted for reality, the very nature of reality disappears. The fault being due entirely to the conceptual form in which we have to think things, one might naturally expect that one who recognizes its inferiority to the perceptual form as clearly as Mr. Bradley does would try to save both forms for philosophy, delimiting their scopes, and showing how, as our experience works, they supplement each other. This is M. Bergson's procedure, but Bradley, though a traitor to orthodox intellectualism in holding fast to feeling as a revealer of the inner oneness of reality, has yet remained orthodox enough to refuse to admit immediate feeling into philosophy at all. 
For worse or for better, he writes, the man who stays on particular feeling must remain outside philosophy. The philosopher's business, according to Mr. Bradley, is to qualify the real ideally, i.e. by concepts, and never to look back. The ideas, meanwhile, yield nothing but a patchwork, and show no unity like that which the living perception gave. What shall one do in these perplexing circumstances? Unwilling to go back, Bradley only goes more desperately forward. He makes a flying leap ahead, and assumes, beyond the vanishing point of the whole conceptual perspective, an absolute reality, in which the coherency of feeling and the completeness of the intellectual ideal shall unite in some indescribable way. Such an absolute totality in unity can be, it must be, it shall be, it is, he says. Upon this incomprehensible metaphysical object, the Bradleyan metaphysic establishes its domain. The sincerity of Bradley's criticisms has cleared the air of metaphysics and made havoc with old party lines. But critical as he is, Mr. Bradley preserves one prejudice uncriticized. Perception, untransmuted, he believes, must not, cannot, shall not enter into final truth. Such loyalty to a blank direction in thought, no matter where it leads you, is pathetic. Concepts disintegrate, no matter, their way must be pursued. Percepts are integral, no matter, they must be left behind. When anti-sensationalism has become an obstinacy like this, one feels that it draws near its end. Since it is only the conceptual form which forces the dialectic contradictions upon the innocent sensible reality, the remedy would seem to be simple. Use concepts when they help, and drop them when they hinder understanding, and take reality bodily and integrally up into philosophy in exactly the perceptual shape in which it comes. The aboriginal flow of feeling sins only by a quantitative defect. There is always much at once of it, but there is never enough, and we desiderate the rest. The only way to get the rest without waiting through all future time in the person of numberless perceivers is to substitute our various conceptual systems, which, monstrous abridgments though they be, are nevertheless each an equivalent for some partial aspect of the full perceptual reality which we can never grasp. This, essentially, is Bergson's view of the matter, and with it, I think that we should rest content. I will now sum up compendiously the result of what proceeds. If the aim of philosophy were the taking full possession of all reality by the mind, then nothing short of the whole of immediate perceptual experience could be the subject matter of philosophy. For only in such experience is reality intimately and concretely found. But the philosopher, although he is unable as a finite being to compass more than a few passing moments of such experience, is yet able to extend his knowledge beyond such moments by the ideal symbol of the other moments. Footnote. It would seem that in mystical ways he may extend his vision to an even wider perceptual panorama than that usually open to the scientific mind. I understand Bergson to favor some such idea as this. C. W. James, A Suggestion About Mysticism, Journal of Philosophy, 7, 4. The subject of mystical knowledge as yet imperfectly understood, has been neglected both by philosophers and scientific men. End footnote. He thus commands vicariously innumerable perceptions that are out of range. But the concepts by which he does this, 
being thin extracts from perception, are always insufficient representatives thereof, and although they yield wider information, must never be treated after the rationalistic fashion as if they gave a deeper quality of truth. The deeper features of reality are found only in perceptual experience. Here alone do we acquaint ourselves with continuity, or the immersion of one thing into another. Here alone with self, with substance, with qualities, with activity in its various modes, with time, with cause, with change, with novelty, with tendency, and with freedom. Against all such features of reality, the method of conceptual translation, when candidly and critically followed out, can only raise its non-posumus and brand them as unreal or absurd. End of chapter 5